Welcome to the third Sunday in Epiphanies. If you remember, Epiphanies is the time in the church calendar between Christmas and the beginning of Lent. And Epiphany literally means to shine a light on. And so we are shining a light on Jesus in this season of Epiphanies, going through the Gospel of John. So turn, if you will, in your Bibles to John chapter 3. We are going to hit probably the most well-known verse in all of the English-speaking word today in John 3.16. You're going to find out where that comes from and what he was saying and, and what's going on because this is the first time now in the Gospel of John where Jesus is going to preach. He's going to teach. Up until now, if you've got a red-letter Bible like I have, there's just scattering sentences here and there in red. I don't think Jesus has said more than two sentences in a row in John's gospel up until now. Chapter three, the the first half of it we're going to look at, wow, it's almost all Jesus. If you have a red-letter Bible, there's a lot of red. So John chapter three, read along with me. I'm going to read the first 21 verses. Now, There was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and he said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you were doing if God were not with him. Jesus replied, very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. How can someone be born when they're old? Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at me saying you must be born again. The wind blows everywhere it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the spirit. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and you do not understand these things. Very truly, I tell you, we speak what we know and we testify to what we have seen, but still, you people do not accept our testimony. I've spoken to you of earthly things and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who has come from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already, because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light, because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. So, guy shows up to meet Jesus. He comes at night. We don't know if that means he's like trying to hide or if that means that's when Jesus is home because, you know, he's out healing and teaching and things the rest of the day. But he comes to see him And we're told two things about this guy, and they're both important. First, we're told he's a Pharisee. Now, I know in the Bible, eventually the Pharisees are going to be the bad guys. They're going to be the ones who really oppose Jesus. But so far in John, that hasn't happened yet. And in their world, the Pharisees were the good guys. Because the Pharisees were like us. They believed the Bible. There were lots of people in this time, in this day and age in Israel, who didn't believe the Bible. 
or they thought it was just an allegory or it had nice things to say and all, but they didn't actually think it was the word of God. They didn't really think. When it said there would be a resurrection one day of the just, they didn't think that was like actually true. It was just a story, you know, it was supposed to inspire you. The Pharisees believed that the Bible was the word of God and that you should obey it. So they were a lot like us in this church in that point. They thought the scriptures were truly from God. It also says he's a member of the Jewish ruling council. So I've told you before, you probably remember your history, Israel, the nation, doesn't rule itself at this time. They're conquered by the Romans over 100 years before this. So there's a Roman governor who sits at the top of the the food chain for government. But he doesn't do much if he doesn't have to. The Romans don't want to have to station a lot of troops here. They don't want to have to govern this. They want you to govern your own territory and just send them the taxes. As long as you don't rebel and you pay your taxes, Rome is fine for you to do whatever you want. Nicodemus is one of the guys who's in charge of the city of Jerusalem and that wider area of Judea. He's he's on the city council, basically. It would be in our case, except that's as high as it goes. Above him is the Roman governor, and that's it. So this is a guy who's theologically conservative and he's involved in politics and he comes to Jesus and he says this really interesting sentence because he doesn't ask Jesus a question. Most people come to Jesus and they either ask him a question or they ask him to do something for them. He doesn't do either of that. He says, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God for no one could perform the signs that you were doing if God were not with him. He calls Jesus Rabbi. That rabbi's a title, right? It's kind of like in our world, we have letters after our names. You know, so-and-so, JD, Juris Doctor, so-and-so, MDiv, MPH, MD. We, we put letters after our names to show what our credentials are. Rabbis like that. To call Jesus a rabbi means you're accepting that he is a theologian, he is a religious teacher. It's a very generous thing for a guy like Nicodemus to say because Jesus doesn't have any credentials. He didn't go to school. He didn't study under anybody. He didn't have any letters after his name. He's just shown up and started preaching and teaching and people are listening to him and he's gathering his own followers. He was never anyone else's disciple, which is normally what happens. That's how school worked in there. It was all apprenticeship. You would normally disciple under someone. That's what Paul says. When he wants to state his credentials in Acts, when he's talking about himself, he says, I studied under Gamaliel because Gamaliel's a big deal in this world. To say you were one of his disciples, that's like, wow, you are, you know, you are up there. Jesus was never anybody's disciple. He never studied under anybody that we know of, but now he's gathering people to himself. Nicodemus treats Jesus like an equal, which is really generous of him because they're not equal at all. (laughs) Nicodemus is a Pharisee and on the ruling council. He's probably older than Jesus. He's certainly wealthier than Jesus. Politically, socially, economically, he is way above Jesus. Jesus is from Nazareth in Galilee. So he's from the middle of nowhere in the middle of nowhere. Earlier in the book, we didn't look at it, but when Philip and and Andrew find Jesus and they think, oh, this is the guy. We talked about how these are these clues in the Old Testament that one day God's gonna send this guy, the Messiah, and they think it's Jesus and they go to another guy named Nathaniel. They're like, we found him. We found the Messiah. It's Jesus of Nazareth. And Nathaniel's response is, seriously, Nazareth? No, 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 the Messiah does not. Nothing good comes out of Nazareth. Like, Jesus is just, he's from the the sticks. 
Nicodemus is really being generous with him. Even though Nicodemus is way, way above him, socially, politically, economic, everything, he's not looking down on him. He's saying, oh, rabbi, you come from God. And he says a couple words that are really important because Jesus will flip them on him. When he says, we know, right? There's two words for know in the language John's writing in. There's, I know because I've seen it firsthand. And there's, I know because I learned it. Somebody taught it to me or I read it. Nicodemus says, we know, we saw it. Saying, oh, we've seen, we've seen you teach. We've heard you teach. We've seen the miracles you do. We know it because we've seen it. And when he says no one could perform, that word could in his language is very strong. It's the word for power. It's the word for miracles. When you see something about Jesus doing a miracle, it's the same word. Nicodemus says to Jesus, oh, we've seen you do these things. We know that you're from God. Nobody has the power you have except that they come from God. So he doesn't ask for anything. He doesn't ask a question. What do you think he's expecting as a response? I mean, put yourself in his shoes. He's up here. He's important. He's powerful. Jesus is down here, but he's treating him like an equal. He's like, yeah, you know, I'll, I'll come down to your level. I'll pull you up to my level. What do you think he's expecting? I try and put myself in this case. And I think about, okay, you know, if I'm older and more experienced and been doing this a lot longer and some kid shows up, you know, who's 20 years my junior, but, you know, he, he's doing a good job and I want to encourage him. And I go to him like, oh, wow, that was great. What a great job. I was really impressed. I kind of think I expect him to say thank you. And maybe, perhaps, even to acknowledge that I'm coming way down. I'm on the ruling council of Jerusalem, and you're some bumpkin from Nazareth. I am coming way the heck down and calling you teacher, rabbi. Uh, you know, I don't know. I just expect a, well, thank you. That means so much coming from you. Right? That'd be a great, respectful answer. Wow. Does Jesus not give him a great, respectful answer? Jesus turns what he says around. Remember, he said, we've seen this and we know. And Jesus says back to him, very truly, I tell you, no one can see. He uses that same word for power, can. No one has the power to see the kingdom of God unless they're born again. Nicodemus says, oh, we've seen this. We know these things. We understand your power comes from God. And Jesus flips that around on him and says, no, no, you don't. You don't understand. You don't have the power to do this. And you haven't seen this. Like he just comes completely around at him and he starts it with, you may have heard this and your Bible may translate it differently. In verse three, Jesus replied, very truly I tell to you, that very truly is literally amen, amen. And amen's a Hebrew word. We still use it today. For us, we use it at the end to signify I'm with you, right? If someone says, oh, this world, it's just falling apart. Amen. That means I agree with you. Yes, absolutely. Or we also use it to say the prayer is over. You can pick up your head and look around now. So in their world, you put it at the beginning. And when you repeat it, amen, amen, what that means is, listen, this is important. I do that sometimes in sermons. Sometimes I will stop. I'll like walk around. I'm like, okay, listen to me. You need to understand this. This is important. Nicodemus comes to this 
really this bumpkin from the middle of nowhere treats him really well and Jesus turns around to this guy who is so far above him in every way and says, listen, this is important. You do not have the power to see what God is doing unless you are born again. You know, and Nicodemus is clearly sort of like taken aback, right? He's backfooted a bit on this. It's like, what? <laughs> you, you cannot be born a second time. Nobody can go back into mom and get born a second time. And notice in verse five, how does Jesus start? Amen, amen, right? You're not listening. Listen, this is important. No one can, no one has the power to even enter God's kingdom unless you are part of these two births. And this time he, he talks a little more. He doesn't just make a sentence. He goes on, he talks about there are two births. There's a physical birth, but there's a spiritual birth as well. You've got to have that second spiritual birth, Jesus says, or you're not gonna see it and you're not gonna understand it. You are not able. You're saying, oh, we're able to tell you're from God. No, you can't. You're not able to tell anything about what God is doing unless you have been born of the spirit. Jesus says, it's like the wind. Imagine that you've grown up and you've never known wind. Wherever you grew up, the wind never blows. As far as you are concerned, air never moves. It just sits there. And then you're looking out the window one day and the trees are doing this. What's going on? Why are trees moving. Jesus says it's like that. If you're not born of the spirit, you can see it happening. You can see those trees going back and forth, but you have no clue why. You don't know what's going on. You don't know where it's coming from or where it's going. If you don't have the spirit, Jesus says, if you are not born of the spirit, nothing about God, none of God's work, you can't understand God's work and you can't be in God's kingdom unless you have had this second birth, he says. And, and this theme goes all the way through the, the, the rest of the New Testament. I don't know if you remember, but almost a year ago to the day, we were at doing the very beginning of 1 Corinthians. And Paul says that at the very beginning of Corinthians chapter two, it's like, look, if you don't have the spirit, none of this is gonna make sense to you. Spiritual things don't make sense to people who don't have the spirit. It's like you've never seen wind or felt wind in your life. Why are the trees moving? It doesn't make any sense. And now verse nine, like Nicodemus is just done, right? What? what, where, How? How is this even possible? What are you talking about? And Jesus says to him, you are Israel's teacher and you do not understand these things. That word understand, that's to know by having been taught. Because Nicodemus was saying, oh, I see these things and I understand. Jesus is like, no, no, you don't. And now he says to Nicodemus, you haven't even been taught these things. And what does he go on to say? We speak of what we know, know by seeing. We testify to what we've seen, same root. But you don't accept our testimony. Jesus says to him, no, you're not a teacher. That's what he's called, rabbi, teacher. He said to you, to Jesus, oh, you're a teacher. And Jesus has said back to him, yeah, you're a teacher. But you don't know what you're talking about because you're not listening to me. And again, verse 11, amen, amen. Nicodemus, listen to me. Listen, this is important. And he goes on to tell him, I know this because I've seen it. 
And when he says the son of man, remember how we've talked about there are these clues throughout what we call it the Old Testament, they would have called it the Bible, that someone's coming, that someday God is gonna send someone. He's gonna be a new king, he's, he's a new priest, he's a new prophet, he's gonna rule the nation, all these things. No one writer writes all about it. There's just little hints. This is one of those hints. It's in the book of Daniel. Daniel looks up into heaven once in a vision and he sees God's throne, but there's a son of man. There's a human being at God's throne. There shouldn't be people at God's throne. If a person is with God, you're destroyed. But there's a person right there at God's throne and God gives that person authority over the whole world. All authority is given to him. That's a messianic prophecy. It's one of those little clues that gets dropped. And Jesus picks that up and says, look, no one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the son of man. That guy that Daniel saw standing at God's throne. He knows because he's seen it. He was there. He's the only one who can tell you about it. He's come back. And then he references this story from Moses, just as the snake was lifted up in the wilderness, so the son of man must be lifted up. It's a story from Numbers. The people are in the desert and they, they, they're complaining against God. They're rebelling against the Lord. And so God sends snakes. Poisonous snakes come into the camp and if they bite you, you're gonna die. Only God tells Moses, make a snake out of bronze and put it on a big pole so everyone can see it in the camp, wherever you are. If you get bit by a snake, you look at the pole, and boom, the venom's done. It doesn't hurt you. You're okay. If you don't look at the snake, you die. The, the snake bite kills you. The people rebel. The consequences are sin. But God makes a way for people to be saved. You don't have to do anything. You don't have to run off. You don't have you don't have to pray anything. You don't have to make any special magical incantation. You don't have to get any medicine. You just look. All you have to do is turn your eyes and look at that snake and boom, you will live. And Jesus says, that's me. That's the son of man. He's gonna be lifted up just like Moses put a snake on top of a pole or a cast, a metal snake. He said, I'm gonna be lifted up. Everyone who believes in me may have eternal life. If you looked at the snake, your physical life didn't end. Jesus says, if you look at the son of man, your life will never end. Now, nobody has ever talked about eternal life yet in the gospel of John. And in the other gospels, it gets revealed progressively. But John, right here at the beginning of his gospel, he is laying out for us who Jesus is and what Jesus is going to do. Jesus is, he's the son of man. He's that messianic figure. He's like the snake that you look at. All you have to do is look at the snake and live. Jesus says, all you have to do is trust me and you'll live forever. And then probably in verse 16, this is probably John. Like there's no quote marks when John wrote. How do you know when Jesus starts talking in verse five, how do you know he's done talking in verse eight? Because verse nine says, Nicodemus said. That's how you know the first guy's done because the second guy talks. Nobody talks again in this story. It's just Jesus all the way through. So we gotta try and figure out where the quotes end. The way it's written, we think the quote probably ends at the end of 15. This is probably John now, again, laying out. What's the rest of this book about? 
Like last week we talked about it. He puts these two crazy stories together. I think to say, wow, there's so much more to Jesus than you think. You cannot pigeonhole him. You cannot stick him in a box or in a corner somewhere. You're gonna have to deal with him. And here he's laying out, what's he writing? What is this about? God loved the world like this. He gave his one and only son. Now think about that. A minute ago it was son of man. Now it's son of God. There's a son of man who's also a son of God. So that whoever believes in him, just like he said about the snake, shall not perish but have eternal life. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. No Jew at this point in time thinks any of that statement is true. God does not love the world. He loves the Jews. The world is terrible. He wants to destroy it. God is not looking to save the world. He's going to save the Jews and destroy the world. Nothing he says there would anyone in his day and age agree with, no one Jewish at least, that God cares about the whole world that he wants to save the whole world. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only son. You may have, if your translation is different, that may sound different because it's hard to get that into English because John's doing something we don't have. Which in the language John's writing in, they don't just do time like we do, past, present, future. They also do this thing called aspect, which has to do with whether something is done or not. So if I say, if you say, oh, Jeff, what'd you do this weekend? And I say, yesterday I filled the car with gas. Is the car full of gas now? You can't tell in English, right? It was full at one point in the past. Is it still full today? You don't know. In his language, what he says is, if you believe, then you're not condemned. And that's present right now. You are not condemned at this moment. But if you don't believe, he says, you were condemned in the past and you're still condemned today. That's why the NIV translates it, you know, is a still, uh, stands condemned already. They're trying to get at this idea of Jesus says, look, if you believe, wow, you're not condemned. Right now, this very moment, you are not condemned. But if you don't believe, you already were condemned and you're still condemned condemned to this day it's not that people if you believe in Jesus you're condemned you're not condemned but if you don't believe him you are nobody is condemned for not believing in Jesus we're already condemned we're self-condemned we'll get to that in a minute we were condemned in the past we're just still condemned to this day the only way to get out of that condemnation John is saying is Jesus You gotta look at him. You gotta believe. But if you do, then right now at this moment, he says, you are not condemned. And this is how he ends in verse 19. This is the verdict. So he's wrapping it up, right? You have a trial. You got the prosecution and the defense and the arguments and it goes on for days. But what's the last thing that happens? The verdict. The judge or the jury says guilty or not guilty. If you're guilty, then then you're condemned. Punishment is given to you. John says, this is the verdict. We're bringing it all together now. Notice the comparisons that he uses. Light has come into the world, but people love darkness. So we're contrasting light and dark. And that that makes sense, right? They're opposites, light and dark. People love darkness because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. So there's evil people doing evil things and they stay in the darkness. 
So what's the opposite going to be? What's he going to say next? And there's good people who do good things and they live in the light. Evil people do evil things in the darkness, so good people do good things in the light, right? No, that's not what he says. He never says good people. Who lives in the light? Verse 21, those who live by the truth. People who are honest about themselves. Those are the people who live in the light so that it may be plainly seen that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. Again, if you've got another translation, it may be different because it's hard to translate. The, the Christian Standard Bible says, so that his works may be shown to be accomplished by God. And the ESV, the English Standard Bible says, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. It, we can't really tell whether he means God's looking at it or God's there or God's doing it. it it's vague. But what's the one thread through any of those possible translations God there are evil people who do evil things in the darkness and there are honest people and God does things with them in the light because the contrast is not between evil people and good people there's no good people in this passage and the contrast is not between people who do evil and people who do good no one is doing good in this passage there's evil people doing evil things and there's honest people that God is at work in. And those are the contrasts that John lays out for us because as he said, we're all already condemned. If you believe in Jesus, you're not condemned. You're no longer condemned, but you were. We are all condemned and we're still condemned if we don't turn to Christ and Jesus will say this. The Pharisees will go on to become really against Jesus. And at one point, they'll get into an argument. And Jesus will tell them, you are going to be condemned. When you get to stand before God, you are not going to be righteous. You're going to be condemned. And they're like, oh, right. What, buddy? You're going to condemn us? And Jesus says, no, I'm not going to condemn you. Moses is going to condemn you. Because you say you have to follow Moses, and then you don't do it. Because you teach other people they need to follow Moses. But you don't do it. Paul says the same thing in Romans. He says God's not going to use the Bible to judge anybody. He's going to use our own words. Every time we say, oh, I can't believe they do that. How can somebody act like that? And then we turn around and do the same thing. Somebody promises us they'll do something. And they forget. And they leave us in a lurch. And what happens inside us? could they do that don't, don't they under like, like they're making trouble why do you make a promise and then not keep it that is so wrong if you weren't going to do it just say no and then what happens later I promise to do something and I don't do it Paul says God's not going to condemn you by the God doesn't need Bible. he's not going to come in and go well you know numbers 27 14 you missed that one didn't you it's just going to play your own words back for you you did say it was wrong to do this, right? Yes. And you did do it here, right? Yes. And God can do that with us. God can do that with any person on the planet all day because we all do it. We are all self-condemned. And so John says, if you don't believe in Jesus, you were condemned in the past and you are still condemned today. Now, normally I end sermons 
with something I want you to do. Like this is, this is what I want you to, to take this. This is how I want you to apply this. This passage isn't about doing anything. There's nothing for a follower of Christ to do here. This is how we are to think. This is how we are to see the world. The whole world, every single person you've ever met, including yourself, is self-condemned in the past. We've all done that. We all stand condemned before God. And there is one way and one way only to not be condemned. It's like, it's like looking at the snake on the pole. You look to Jesus. You trust him. You don't do anything. It's not, again, evil people turn and do good things and become good people. Evil people acknowledge the truth and they live in the light with God and God is at work in them and with them and through them. That's what it means. If you are a follower of Christ, that is, that is truth, that is reality. That is what happens. You're not good. You weren't good before, you're not good now. Don't kid yourself. And the good things you do, that's because we're doing them in and through God. That's who we are. That's why the motto for our church is be disciples, make disciples. Because the whole world's condemned. The whole world has condemned themselves. But there is one way, one way to not be condemned. Just look to Jesus. I mean, can you imagine being in that camp when somebody gets bit by a snake? What would you say to them? Look at the pole! <laughs> look! I mean, grab them by the head. Look at the pole! Because if you do, you live. That's what we're doing for people. <laughs> we're telling people, look at Jesus. You've been bit by the snake. You're gonna die. All you have to do is look at Jesus. You don't gotta do anything else. It is God's promise to you. It is God's work in you. You don't gotta change. You don't gotta stop being bad and start being good. You don't have to stop doing bad things and start doing good things. Now, don't get me wrong. God will do that in you. Remember, that's what Paul, that's what John says. It's God working in them. It's in his presence. It's happening in him and through him. God will do that in you. You will turn from darkness and and come to light but all you gotta do is look to Jesus and then you're not condemned. Be disciples, make disciples. That's why we say it because that's what the world needs. And if you are not a follower of Christ, if you've never done that, you can today. It's easy. You just have to be honest. You just have to be people who live by the truth. Yep, you're right, I've done that. I've been mad about something that somebody else did and then I've done it myself and I've excused it. I've said, well, I didn't mean to, so I must be innocent, right? If I walk down these steps and and I accidentally step on your foot and break one of your toes, I didn't mean to, so it's not my fault, right? No, of course it's your fault. I stepped on your toe. (laughs) Of course it's my fault. Not being, we want to say that ignorance equals innocence. I didn't mean to do it, so I can't be held accountable. Yes, yes, you can. You will be. And we've all done it. All you have to do is be honest. Yep, that's true of me. And then look to Jesus. Believe. Say, yep, Lord, this is true of me. Please, will you forgive me? Because the answer is always yes. Always. That's why he came, he says. He came because God loves the world and he wants the world back. If you're not a follower of Christ, you can be. 
Just like looking at the snake. You just got to say to Jesus, yep, that's true of me. Will you please save me? And the answer is always yes. So I'm going to pray for us. I'm going to close us. If you are a follower of Christ, then rejoice in these truths. And we'll rejoice in them again at the table. If you're not a follower of Christ, that is a good time to tell him. It's a good time to be honest. Yep, that's me. I've done those things. Jesus, will you please save me? Let's pray. Uh, Lord, thank you. I I so appreciate that John puts this at the beginning of the Gospels because most of the writers put it at the end. You have to slowly get there and and it unwinds like a mystery story as we go along. Boy, John just leads with it right at the beginning. This is who you are. This is why you came. I mean, I I get that it's not fully understood, but that somehow you are the son of man and the son of God. That, That somehow you will be lifted up and if people only believe in you, then they're not condemned anymore. Now, I get that so much more has to happen to you for our salvation. But I am so grateful that John puts it here right at the beginning. I am so grateful that I do not have to go from being an evil person doing evil things to becoming a good person doing good things in order for you to accept me. I just have to be honest and acknowledge that I've done those things. I just have to acknowledge that, yes, that is what I am like. I tell people they have to do something, and then I don't do it. I teach people that something is wrong, and then I do do it. I just have to be honest and look to you, believe, trust you, and then you save us. Thank you. That is so gracious of you. We will find out at the end of this book that being lifted up means crucified. They will kill you so that you can purchase our salvation. We, we don't know that yet in the Gospel of John. So much more is going to happen to you, but thank you. Thank you that, that this was true and this is still true. We stand before you not condemned. Even though we have condemned ourselves, we are not condemned before you if we trust in Christ. He took our condemnation. And that anyone, you love the world, anyone, can turn to you, be honest, and ask, trust you, and and you will save them. Thank you. That is so gracious of you. Lord, continue to work that truth in our heart. For all of us who know you, continue to work those truths into our heart. We're not bad people who became good people. We didn't do bad things, and now we did good things, and you have saved us because we do good things. We're bad people who did bad things, and you saved us. That's, that's the truth. We live by the truth. Thank you for all of us who know you. Holy Spirit, remind us of that over and over again. Remind us what we were and what we are and that it's all you. And for anybody who's not your follower, Jesus, I pray you would grant them life. You would grant them understanding. Again, it's like the wind blowing in trees when you've never seen wind. This isn't going to make any sense unless your spirit opens up people's minds and hearts. And so I pray that you would. I pray that you would open people's hearts and minds for your glory, Lord, because you desire, for your joy, you desire to have people come to you. Scripture says you considered it a joy, that that for the joy set before you, you endured the cross. You scorned its shame. Thank you. We are so grateful, Lord. We pray all these things in your name, Jesus, because you are our Savior and our God. 
Amen.